0: Hey, Forge Family. God bless you. This is going to be the episode number eight of the Jacob story. Before we start, let's review a little bit. The last episode was entitled "Schemer versus Schemer," and um, that was where where God began to provide provision for Jacob to make him a wealthy man. His wives had had worked with God and in spite of God and had given him 12 sons and a daughter. But now God works to, to provide for, for Jacob and his household. So just as Rachel got pregnant at the end of the 14th year, excuse me, she delivered at the end of the 14th year and gave birth to Joseph, the two service contracts to pay off the bride price of seven years apiece, that had been concluded. And so Jacob went to Laban and said he desired to be released. Instead, Laban desired to have Jacob work. And so they came up with a labor contract, uh, which Jacob agreed to. Jacob went back to work for the flocks and herds of Laban, and immediately Laban cheats. And he tips the odds to make sure that Jacob will fail and have nothing to show for his labor. As the account continues on toward the end of it, we find out that God is the one who was really working through Jacob's plan. He reveals to Jacob that it was him all along that produced phenomenal wealth, flocks and herds and manservants and women's servants and cattle and donkeys and camels. And so, on. Uh, um, Jacob came out of that experience as a wealthy guy, but... Jacob turns and sees that the sons of Laban are envious. Yes, and we said it was just like Isaac prospering in famine season and the Philistines got envious. Now Laban's sons have basically said everything that was our father's, Jacob Jacob's taken away. And he sees Laban's countenance change and he's not friendly anymore. So at that point, God speaks to Jacob and says, time to go, son. Gather yourself, gather your wives and your stuff, and go back to Canaan. Go back to your father's tents. Jacob does that. He calls his wife. He gets unanimity out of them. And as he prepares to flee Laban's compound, it says, Rachel stole Laban's house gods. Those are the teraphim that we talked about. And they're going to appear in this account as well in episode number eight. And Jacob sets off, puts his family on camels that can run, and then he moves his flocks and herds rapidly down the road because he's headed for the highland plateau of Gilead, which would be the uplands. They're not on the slopes. I misspoke last week. They're not on the slopes down to the, the, um, the Jordan River. They're above that. They're at high elevation. It's great grazing area for flocks and herds in my, what would be modern-day Jordan. So let's pray before we start episode number eight. Lord God, thank you that we have seen you keep your promise to Jacob to provide for him and to protect him. And now, Lord, he's headed into an armed conflict uh, with Laban. And so we, we want to have the eyes to see what you're doing. We want to be able to zoom out and see what is it that God's been doing all along here. And so we ask you, Lord, um, as, as Jacob is wrongfully accused, would you please teach us some lessons? on how we should respond as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, family. In Genesis 31, 22, word comes to Laban as he's shearing sheep out on the southern plains of, of Aram. And uh, the word comes and says Jacob has fled. So Laban gathers his brothers, his kinsmen. He mounts them on fast-running camels and arms them as a force and pursues Jacob. For seven days. Now Jacob has a three-day lead, so Jacob's been going for ten days, and it says he arrives in the hill country of Gilead, and he stakes, he put down his um, his tent stakes, and and the, there's it's an automatic, automatic poetic word that's used in the Hebrew text, takah, uh, takah, and it's it's descriptive of the sound of something being driven into the ground. Uh, to pierce something, and we would say probably we would listen for some Mozart, or we would listen for the da 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 da, you know, the kind of musical background that says, "Uh oh, something's coming." And sure enough, here comes Laban, and it says he he uh, encamps on another high place, strategic place in those plains, and on that night, just before the confrontation with Jacob. It says that God appears to Laban in a dream. And he says, be careful. Don't say anything good or bad to Jacob. Another way to say that would be, don't you bless him. And don't you curse him. You just shut your lip. You have nothing to say to him. Which, honestly, Laban then proceeds to ignore. Somewhat okay and he and he sets up this confrontation between the the family of Jacob and the, his servants and all their shepherds and things and on the other side this armed force of camel riding people that have run down Jacob. there's a man named Cutler who's a scholar who has looked hard at the battle challenges in Bible Hebrew in, Ak- in the Akkadian language and in Ugaritic in the ancient Near East um, documents on on, on uh, cuneiform clay tablets in inscriptions that uh, stuff that was carved and left behind and uh, it's his opinion that as Laban comes into the presence of Jacob he comes with force it really is you know he's holding himself back but he you know it's he's there to do battle and it, and he speaks openly with great irony because he says what have you done now he has completely forgotten that that's exactly That is exactly the words out of the mouth of Jacob. When Jacob is first married, and there's a wedding celebration, and he rolls over at dawn, and there in bed with him in the tent is Leah, not his beloved Rachel. And he gets up and flashes out of the tent, and he goes to Laban, and he says, What have you done? You deceived me. That's exactly what Laban says back to him. So Laban is receiving, if you will, what he's sown. He's reaping what he's sown. And he says, you've taken my daughters as POWs, prisoners of war. You know, those who are taken by the sword. You see, he doesn't know. He has no way of knowing. He's absolutely blind to the fact that his daughters, Leah and Rachel, now stand with their husband, with Jacob, not with him. And he says, oh, I, all these floral words. I was going to th- throw a big party. I was going to have a blowout celebration. I wanted to kiss my sons. They're really not his sons. They're his grandsons. And the upper word is my sons. I want to kiss my daughters. He says, you took them away. You snatched them away. And he he comes right back and he says, now, it is in my power to harm all of you. And that includes daughters and grandchildren. And then the next phrase is the classic one, honestly, where he's put out his threat and then he says, but God. And he replays exactly the dream wording from the night before uh, that God told him, don't you say good or bad. Don't you bless or curse. And lastly, he says, "I I know you were longing. You were longing to leave to go to your father's tents but why did you steal my gods? Another way of saying that might have been, and you have left me blind. If you recall, those teraphim, those house gods, those were objects of worship. They were objects by which he did divination, which is a form of witchcraft. It's the casting of, 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 of lots or something. You're trying to determine the future. You're trying to divine the future. Okay. These, these um, house gods, if you will, were probably his life savings that had been melted down and cast into some kind of form. Um, they were precious metals, and they were part of the, of the deed to Laban's estate. And so when Rachel took that, she snatched them away from him. She was trying to recoup part of the bride price that was supposed to have been kept in escrow, if you will, for she and for Leah. But it says in the text of the previous chapter that um, Laban had consumed it all. Every possible iota of profit that came to him from 14 years of Jacob's service for the bride price, he'd consumed it. He'd used it up. There was nothing for them to inherit. And so Rachel takes it on herself to say, I'm going to get mine. Now, God, God works with that. He doesn't approve of it at all. But he's aware of it. So here's here's Jacob. He is wrongly accused of stealing something from Laban. And out of his mouth, he admits, "I, I was afraid. There was fear in me because unless you would come and take back my wives and my children by force. So he's able to stand up and get up in Laban's face and say, no, you're mistaken. Those are my wives and my children. That's my family. And I was afraid you were going to take it by force. And then second, he, he makes a rash vow. He just pops off at the mouth. And he says, go ahead, get your witnesses around you. Get your kinsmen around you. You can, you can feel your way through all my stuff. You go through everything I have. And if anything of yours is here, the one who has it is dead. Now, he did not know that his beloved Rachel was the one who had stolen the teraphim. So this is the first recorded rash vow of its kind in Scripture. But there are numbers of them where people kind of on the spur of the moment trying to impress God. They say something, and and then it bites them bad. In this case, the Lord steps around this vow. So Laban sets out with witnesses, and he searches through the camp. It says he went through Leah's tent, he went through Bilhah, uh, and he went through Zilpah's tent, and he didn't find anything. Then he gets to Rachel's tent. Now it says in the text she had hidden the teraphim, these precious metal godlings, if you will, under a camel saddle and sat down on it. Now a cattle saddle, a camel saddle. I've I've sat in one of those. Okay, it's probably thirty inches by thirty inches square, probably flexed a little bit. You know, sort of square and and flexed in the middle. Uh, with a little bit of a padded platform, it's made of wood and fiber and leather and woven rugs. It's probably 18 inches high, so it would conform to the back, the hump of a camel, and not not rub that camel raw, not blister up the camel. Instead, it would it would ride comfortably there, and a woman could ride on that side saddle. It's probably much like the cattle saddle, the camel saddle. Camel saddles that you see in the Middle East today. Okay. Now, there wasn't much space underneath that camel saddle. And, but it was enough to hide the teraphim, And so, Laban comes in and he's greeted by his daughter with, Hi, daddy. Not. She doesn't say that. She says, forgive me, my lord. I cannot stand because I'm menstruating. She's having her period, and she continues to sit on the saddle. He searches all around her, doesn't find a thing, and leaves. Now, as a side note, if her statement is true, okay, if she's having her period, the scripture says anything a menstruating woman touches becomes unclean. And so the teraphim became defiled. They became worthless. They became filthy. And they're actually referred to as filthy objects later in scripture, wherever that phrase pops up again. So Laban finishes his search, comes skidding back in front of of Jacob, and he's found nothing. There's nothing there. Now, Jacob's angry. Jacob is just uh, incandescent. Okay, And he says, you show me in front of witnesses what you found. And it's not there. And he launches into... A 20 year story of what happened while he was serving Laban. He said, No loss by miscarriage ever happened to any of your flocks and herds when I was caring for them. You just prospered. You got live births. Second, there was no culling of Laban's flocks of excess breeding stock or older breeding stock. He says, I didn't eat the rams. Now, maybe Laban did that. Maybe he, that was how he just kind of, you know, that was his living. He lived off of his seed, if you will. Jacob said, I never did that. Whatever was lost to predators, Jacob bore that cost. He never submitted an expense sheet that said, oh, look at that. We lost three to a wolf this week. Never. He paid it because that's what shepherds did. He says, I paid you for every stolen animal that I failed to guard. And I did this to the point of exhaustion. Then he goes back to the 14 years of service to pay off the bride price for two daughters. And he basically says, I have f- kept my bargain with you. See, this is, this is a statement of his integrity in dealing with a scummy guy. And then he said, six years I worked for you with your flocks. And you changed my wages ten times. This is the Hebrew metaphor for over and over and over. You change my wages over and over and over again. And in a sense, this is the second time he's uttered this. Once to his wives and now once right into the face of Laban. And his statement is like, enough. I'm done with it. Eighth, he says, if not for God, the God of my father Isaac, and if not for the God of Abraham, and if not for the fear of Isaac. If that had not been with me and for me, you would have sent me away empty-handed after 20 years of labor. Interesting that he refers to the fear of Isaac because he says it here and then he swears by it later. The fear of Isaac is Isaac inherited hundreds of armed, trained men from his father Abraham. And in the course of Isaac's lifetime, those armed men would have had children and numbers of them would have been recruited and trained into a powerful paramilitary force. And Jacob knew it. Jacob knew that the fear of Isaac was there, that if he messed with Jacob, if Laban messed with Jacob, he'd answer to Isaac. Ninth, It says, God saw my affliction and my toil. And last night, Laban, in a dream, he judged you. He weighed you and found you wanting. It was his way of saying, you're done. God has come down on you. And he's on my side. So Laban responds. You see, a cheater, a greedy guy a liar a deceiver he always has words and he says those daughters over there they're mine hello those children those grandchildren over there they're mine those flocks out there scattered as far as i can see that's all mine see he's blinded by idolatry by sin by greed by control by witchcraft And he comes back and he says, what can I do this day? Which is a Hebrew sort of flip of the shoulder and he goes, okay, you win. And Laban proposes a covenant of all things between he and Jacob. And if you read the text carefully, it says that Jacob calls his brothers, his kin, his family to gather stones and make a heap. To pile it up. And then Jacob sets up a pillar. Again, heard this story before? He did that in Hebron. He sets up a pillar and it's a covenant pillar. In Hebrew, it's like, God, I'm making a vow to you. I'm, I'm making a covenant with you. Okay, Here, he's making a vow and a covenant with Laban. And these two companies, the armed company of Laban, sit down and eat in the presence of this memorial heap of stones with the family of Jacob. Now, in the ancient Near East and even today, when you sit with an Arab family, in your Bedouin country or in an Arab family, and sometimes in urban settings, if you sit and eat with them, that's called sharing salt. And, and you share food, you become as family. You become, a, it's like a covenant meal even today. Laban names that place Heap of Witness in Aramaic, and Jacob names it Heap of Witness in Hebrew. And the location was at Mizpah. Mizpah is one of the heights, one of the high places on the plains of Gilead. And it was a watchtower. It was a light tower or a lighthouse, which probably was an early warning system for the region because we know in Abraham's time that the kings, uh, uh, Ketelammer and a bunch of others, five kings had come and swept through that region and took men, women, children, flocks, herds, and everything, family goods, every shoestring, they picked it up and were going to take it home. And so... Mizpah was a, war, was, a, was a signal tower, if you will, that, where you could lay a fire and that would be able to say, they're coming, and you would light the fire and it would, it would shine and it could be seen for, for a vast radius around it to, to, as a warning thing. <clears throat> now, when I was growing up, when I was uh, in high school and college and as a young adult, I knew people, I knew people who had that, that phrase, Mizpah, uh, and, uh, and what it means. You know, Laban says, Mizpah, you know, hear Mizpah, may the Lord watch between you and me as we are apart, one from another. That's Laban's words, okay? I know friends who had that inscribed, engraved inside their wedding rings. They saw it as blessing. Truth is, it's an imprecation. It, it's a sharp warning. It's not a blessing. If anything, it's a promise that says, if you, Jacob, and any of your people come past this pillar in my direction, I will kill you. And then he turns and he says, oh yeah, and don't mistreat my daughters. They're still my daughters. And, and don't take other wives because that'll mess with the inheritance of my daughters. See, Laban, Laban's an amazing guy. Okay, all the way through here he says, "See, this pillar and the heap that I built that I put up, he's taking credit for something that Jacob did entirely, entirely." Okay? He just is absolutely blinded to what's going on around him. And the reason for that is that's the essence of witchcraft. That's the essence. And in the essence of witchcraft is control. So they agree to this covenant between them. Jacob sacrifices, and there's a second covenant meal. They sit down, and then Laban stands up to depart. He kisses his daughters. He kisses his grandchildren, blesses them. Now realize, a blessing has to have content. Let me say it again. A blessing has to have content. And a blessing out of the mouth of Laban is empty air. And with this, he walks out of the Bible accounts. He's never heard from again. Henry Morris uh, had this to say about Laban. He said, rather than seeking to follow the truth of God's plan, as witnessed by as witnessed by Jacob, Laban merely resented and coveted the blessing of God on Jacob. He finally ended up with neither, neither God's plan, or the blessing. His life constitutes a sober warning to a great host of semi-religious, but fundamentally self-worshipping and self-seeking men and women today. So, four geez, When you look through the seven mountains, if you will, of uh, you know, this, six of them jump to mind immediately: religion. Government, media, education, entertainment, and business. In those mountains, you're gonna find Labans. Okay, you're gonna find those self-important, self-religious, you know, fundamentally self-worshipping guys and, and women today. Jacob goes on his way. Chapter thirty-two, verse one, verse two. Jacob comes back into the promised land, and he's met at that point, it says, by a host of angels. See, he knew what they looked like, because he'd seen them on his exit from Canaan. When he was in Hebron, he had a dream, and God appeared to him, stood next to him as the angels ascended and descended. Remember? Now, here are the angels on the borders of Canaan. And he says, oh, this is surely the camp of God. See, Hebron was the dwelling of God, the house of God. Well, this, this engagement with God's angels says, oh, this must be God where God hangs out part of the time. This is his camp, and he names it Mahanaim. 20 years before, there were angels. And now, as he returns to Canaan, there's angels there to welcome him. So now, Forges, I have a question for you. What do you do when you are wrongly? Accused. when you're libeled, when you're slandered. Now, immediately, the flesh gets angry. The flesh inside of you just rises, and you want to see justice done. You want to see that lie slapped down. But the Spirit of God within you has a different way. If you recall, in verse 42 of chapter 31, it says, out of Jacob's mouth, God saw my affliction. God saw the trouble that I was in. And so at that point, you come to the realization and the affirmation that God knows the truth. And you start, number one, you trust in that God who sees. Number two, let me suggest you call on the God who is peace, the God of shalom. You see, this is the peace that settles your heart. This is the peace that destroys chaos. Thirdly, you you arm yourself. You get ready. And the, the text of Ephesians 6 talks about putting on something on your feet. You, your feet are to be shod. You put on something called the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's that same peace. It settles your heart, it destroys chaos, and it where you stand, right there where you stand, is peace because you're standing on it. You your loins, you know, your creative efforts are strapped together around truth. So you prepare yourself to speak only the truth. There's no hyperbole, there's no elaboration, there's no shading, there's no reporting of secondhand stuff. You simply speak what's true for you. You put on the breastplate of righteousness, okay? It protects your vital organs, but it means I have righteousness with God and that's what counts here. And so he's going to war for me. You put on the helmet of salvation and you acquire the mind of Christ. You have a clear-headedness about you. You pick up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the evil one or ones. You know, the, the assailing statements, the lies that come against you. You just hold up your faith and say, Lord, extinguish those things. My faith will stand. And then... Lastly, you take up the sword of the spirit. Okay, in which from the word of God will come to you wisdom and counsel. Lastly, Forge, you stand. You let God pass judgment. You let God go to war. You let God send his angels to stand with you. All right, Forge. Love you. We're going to see you soon. God bless.